Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. You're listening to Justice podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In this episode, I talk with Anne Fox, Chief Executive of Clinks. We discuss the critical role of the voluntary sector in providing services and support to people in the criminal justice system. What do those charities need to ensure they can continue to operate during and after the COVID-19 pandemic? I'm Anne Fox. I'm the Chief Exec of Clinks, which is the infrastructure organisation for voluntary sector organisations working with people in criminal justice in England and Wales. Okay, and I think at this point, just to get this out of the way straight away, it is different to the Clink restaurant. It is indeed. (laughs) It It is is indeed. Clinks, not Clink. So before anyone gets any confusion as to why we're not talking about food, that is why. So can you tell me what Clinks is, what it does and, and why you exist? Delighted to. So Clinks was founded in about 1997 as a project at London Prison Community Links. Uh, to coordinate the work of charities working in the then five London prisons, in each of those prisons and between them. And I suppose the same is true now, 22 22 or so years later, that organisations working with people, particularly in prison, face particular challenges that are different to most charities in the country. And there is a need for specific attention to those challenges and also the opportunities that come with working with people in the criminal justice system and working with those systems. So what we do is try and be quite practical and we provide the kind of support that charities and social enterprises need because they work with people in the justice system. Okay, so for example, I've got a small charity and what, I become a member with you? How, how does the process work? Yeah, we'll provide support to organisations, whether they're members or not. Okay. So we are a membership organisation, but with other membership organisations, you maybe have to be signed up to get that support. Okay. Clinks gets grant funding from a range of charitable funders and also holds a grant to provide infrastructural support to the voluntary sector from Her Majesty's Prison and Probation Service. So we will provide support to people regardless of whether they kind of ask for it through membership or not. Our membership provides a few extra benefits um, to that kind of core support. But depending on what the organisation does, we have a varied offer. 
Um, and we don't have the same offer for everybody. And that's one of the things we really want to do as time goes on and we continue to develop is to make sure that any organisation working in criminal justice feels it gets a good offer from clinks. Maybe it's an organisation working with specific type of people or people who've committed a specific type of offence or in a certain part of the country where it's the geography that really impacts on how that organisation needs to work. Um, so typically we provide information to organisations. We have an e-bulletin that goes out every Friday called Light Lunch. We communicate a lot on Twitter um, where a lot of our organisations uh, also kind of have a bit of a semi-life. And we aim to tell organisations what's happening in their sector and tell others about these organisations and what they do. So that would include talking to people who might fund those organisations, people who might make the laws and policies that dictate how those organisations work and drive up or down the need of the people they serve, their service users and beneficiaries. And we do a whole range of influencing work, um, which gets us tied up in all sorts of knots at times, but seeking to advocate for ways of working that involve the voluntary sector in helping people towards desistance. Our sector is very much desistance based when you look at the kind of, I suppose, the different theories or ideological bases and very much about working with people towards a better future than maybe the past they've had okay. and the situation that they found themselves in. And how many organisations are you currently helping, would you say? So signed up members, uh, we have 550. 550, right. Yeah, and we have contact weekly with, uh, difficult for a Dubliner to say, 13,000 people every week through wow. Light Lunch. So we have active subscribers and different organisations and different people in the organisations will get involved in different ways. But we have active contact with with that many people every week. Right. So you also have to be an expert in, you know, a really wide range of things, I guess, because you never know what issue or problem someone might have. And it sounds like it's from funding to how to navigate, I don't know, racial disparity or yeah. um, working with sex offenders. Am I right? Yeah, I think what we try to do is rather than be the experts ourselves, is really lean in and listen to those organisations and their expertise. So we won't, for example, write a policy consultation response um, that one of our member organisations or one of the organisations in the sector would do better on something specific. So the women's work, our women's work, for example, tends to add voice to what others do and gather together the evidence the same when I work in the arts. So if I and my charity wanted to know more about, I don't know, racial disparity or disproportionality in the system, you might say, well, these are the people you need to talk to. Is that right? We might. We might also gather together, quite typical of us, gather together the evidence on things and do research with those specialist organisations. Okay. So good example, a few years ago, we did a piece on the use of volunteers in prisons, what works, what doesn't work. And we did that on commission from the then prisons minister, Andrew Salou. And we got, we commissioned user voice in our membership to do a listening piece with people in prison about the value of volunteers. We then turned that information, again, given user voice a commission, into resources on how to involve your service users and how to work with volunteers Okay, uh, in a way that resonates best with, you know, the reason why you have those volunteers in the first place. So that kind of thing, 
You said there was about 550 members at the minute. Do you know how many criminal justice charities roughly there are out there? We do. So um, it's it's a little bit of a, a rudimentary figure. We're not completely sure. But the, the best guesstimate is about 1,750 charities in England and Wales who are specifically set up to support what some people might use the language offenders. So on your charities, memorandums and articles of association, Edwina, it might well say something like supporting people in the criminal justice system who've had an experience of trauma. I don't know. I didn't look it up. But people will talk about that for the rehabilitation of offenders to support the families of people in prison. So it'd be very specific on the headed paper if you like, of 1,750 organisations that they work specifically and only in criminal justice. But if you look then at the needs of people in criminal justice, you then have around about 5,000 organisations who work with people because of what they do and the fact that that issue is maybe disproportionately experienced by people in the justice system. It's often why that person's in the justice system, maybe, from our way of thinking. So, for example, like a small charity that works with um, children who have a parent in prison, for example. It could exactly be, but they'd probably be more in the first group. Okay. Because they're specifically founded around that issue. The wider group, the 5,000, as we call non-specialist organisations when we're kind of splitting our data up, they would be homelessness organisations, organisations for people who use substances problematically, um, people who've experienced domestic violence and abuse, people who have mental health difficulties, those kind of organisations who then will find themselves working with people in the justice system as part of that work because people in the justice system have higher episodes of need okay of those kind of services right and what are you seeing and hearing I mean what we're about six months in I think believe it or not uh, when we were all first told to stay at home back in March and and what's the picture that you're seeing with charities on the ground at the minute given that most of the prisons have shut to any type of external organization going in yeah it's it's pretty varied um And some of that is because of how those organisations, like how fit they were, how resilient they were already to withstand. Nobody's really resilient for a pandemic and what that brings, but what their level of resilience was in the first place, how financially strong they were, how strong their relationships were with the system, um, how much flexibility they had in how they're funded, be it a contract or a grant. So people are having quite different experiences. We've been listening to organisations really regularly. So we cancelled our face-to-face services, but we've been having very regular Zoom hangouts and different different ways of coming together on video to find out how organisations are experiencing things. And we've been doing a regular survey. We just, I think we're just publishing this week, the most recent briefing. And that survey was you know, it was requested by the Ministry of Justice. So they had a good handle on what was happening in the sector. Financially, organisations are finding it really tough, but they really do vary. So we usually support and focus our specialism more on the smaller organisations and the more specialist organisations who tend to be, they've got smaller budgets anyway. So uh, they've got smaller incomes and the majority of their money tends to come from charitable trusts and foundations. So they get less government money. And, you know, it wasn't always the case, but it's the case in recent years since things change more to contracts than grants. So those organisations aren't faring as badly right now, mainly because 
of the very positive and quick reaction and response of the charitable funding sector. But our concern for those organisations is more medium to long term. Yeah. Because the charitable funding sector itself will be very adversely hit. The value of endowments, whether or not organisations seek to prioritise more COVID relief longer term and change the priorities that they have. There aren't a huge number of charitable funders who fund in criminal justice. And it's always been a thing for us. I know you and I have met over the years in in all sorts of places where it's about funding and philanthropy because we've been trying to encourage that more and more. And this is now quite a critical moment for those organisations. So we've already had people say to us, we were okay for this year. Now that's fine because we've been given a relief grant or we're able to turn our money into core and, you know, take any restrictions off it. And that's great. But next year I was going to XYZ funder and they've now said that their money is all going into COVID relief. Right. So that's what's worrying for the future because the system itself doesn't pay these particularly small organisations. No. And so your prediction for the long term forecast, maybe, you know, do you have an idea in... Well, it's not that far ahead, but two years is only 24 months. But do you imagine we'll see a huge reduction in the number of specialist charities working in and around our prisons? We're hoping we won't, but you couldn't fail to see the risk there that that is what could happen. So we are collecting this information and we're working closely with HMPPS and MOJ and other government departments, um, as well as in coalition with the wider group of infrastructure organisations. So there's there's quite a lot of us. There's organisations like Clinks that are for specific types of organisations. And then there's the kind of the mothership of the National uh, Council for Voluntary Organisations, NCVO and others like that. And we're all making these cases um, in a combined campaign, hashtag never more needed, that really charities and social enterprises around the country need to be supported to sustain themselves because this pandemic is wreaking havoc on society and particularly on more vulnerable people and people who always needed more but never got enough um and you know we need to keep these these doors and places open absolutely you touched on the sort of financial struggles obviously that is always um uh, a reality for charities having to constantly fundraise or enter into contracts and i just want to home in on one particular issue which is quite a hot topic i think for charities which is contract subsidy um could you explain to our listeners what that is and why it's such a problem yeah very happy to uh, cover this quite sad topic so what we traditionally saw is that in criminal justice, most organisations got their money from central government or local government. And in criminal justice, that tended to be prison and probation services rather than local authorities. But they got money through grants. And increasingly, and in recent years specifically, we've seen a kind of reversal of that number. And the majority of money that flows down now to the voluntary sector from the system itself is in contracts for service. Um, Now, there's kind of the few big groups in which that happens. So there were subcontracts under transforming rehabilitation for the delivery of services to people under probation supervision. There is the dynamic purchasing system for prison education services, mainly education. Um, and there is a group of contracts around the provision of what's called family and significant other services, FSOS provision. And those contracts basically provide services to 
people's families to visit them in prison and some other services around family support. Now, those contracts are really interesting because those contracts pretty much, I think all bar one, are less to voluntary sector organisations. So we know you will always have subsidy with charities and contracting because charities, you'll know yourself from the work that you do, not just in the charity that you run, but in charities you've helped to found and work with over the years. Charities will use their money quite dynamically. They bring money in from a range of different sources and hey presto, you have a service for people. And they can add a lot of value to funding from what they're able to do when they one and one together can make six. And that is good. I think that's a, a really innovative way of work and it's a really good way maybe for funders to see the added value and the potential and sustainability. But there comes a point when subsidies are really dangerous and subsidisation really needs to be looked at. So when we tracked in Clinks the probation contracts and the subcontracts to the community rehabilitation companies in the last few years, we found around about, I think it was 40 odd percent subsidisation. Now, that's probably too high. And in some cases, 40% does sound like quite a big chunk. And it comes down to, now we know that it's well published and documented now from a range of different sources, that the CRC contracts themselves were undervalued. So what you then had was following on from that, a kind of a cascade down of that poor pricing in the contract value that people were having to spend or subsidise. Now, it happened in different ways. Sometimes it was the contract value is not quite enough not enough to give the quality. So we're going to take that money in. That then allows us to work with those people and we will provide extra money from other funders or from charitable reserves and we will up that. Sometimes it was that the cost of the contract to run the contract, to administer the contract, you needed to expend further resources to make sure that you kept up to date with the sheer weight of admin and bureaucracy. Um, so there's a whole range of different ways in which subsidisation is needed. But the current contracts that we have for family services, in some of those, because the price is fixed, but the, the population that might need it in a prison in a year is quite varied, we found that organisations are having to subsidise quite heavily. And there's a formal structure for that because they are able to exclusively provide the tea bar that provides refreshments to family visitors uh, in the visit hall during a visit. And they're able to run that tea bar, sell tea, coffee, bags of sweets, crisps, whatever it is, and then retain that income in the charity towards the cost of the service. Now, we know of organisations where that subsidisation is in excess of 50%. So that's a real worry. Do these charities go into these contracts knowing how much they're going to have to subsidise or is it something that sort of becomes apparent as as one moves along? It's a bit of both, but where we got to the last time that these were let, three years ago, a lot of that came up in negotiation. The price that you want for the service that you want in this prison isn't sufficient. So we're going to have to find a way. Do you have more money? System says no. So then there's this innovation around, well, we can do it if you give us the T-bar. And we run it with the T-bar and we retain it in that way. And in many ways, that's all well and good. And it's a good use of services because there's also, there's a dedicated way to get the money in to provide greater levels of service and arguably better quality, particularly in family services because we had Lord Farmer's review and the system has responded really well to say, yes, we want to be much better 
in our family services. So some of these expectations were heightened. You know, people, prison said, well, we want this. We want this kind of wraparound support. And it's like, well, we can't provide that from the price in the contract. But if we if we agree this arrangement, then we can do it. And it's three years, you know, and that's okay. And then lockdown comes. And in lockdown, you can't provide that service. You, you can't provide tea and coffee because there's no visits. And in lockdown recovery, the current stage, you can't provide refreshments under the exceptional delivery model. Okay. So you can't do that. Now, I won't go into the detail because the organisations are working with the system on what's the relief monies and how does all that stuff work. And it's not just criminal justice. It's a wider thing about how the state works with charities. Yeah. And may expect them to bring in the rest of the money that's needed. Yeah, because, you know, I've often wondered over the years, yes, um, often charities will come in and plug a gap uh, and often do it very well. But I've seen uh, members of staff not pay themselves. Um, I've seen all sorts of things that I've sort of sat there, particularly when I was younger and first sort of working in the justice system in my early 20s out of university, I'd be like what is going on here? You know, you're running this service on a shoestring because you care about the families of the prisoners, the prisoners you care about, the prison, actually, you care about the prison staff. But it's such, I remember being over, like, really bowled over by how dysfunctional that relationship is. And I also went through a a tender process in order to get the charity that I was volunteering for at the time to remain in. And the only way they could do that was to offer their services almost for free. And the CEO was like, well, I won't take a wage for a year. And she didn't have the money to do that. And I sort of thought, this is utter madness. So I wonder why the system doesn't just provide these things themselves, because a lot of them are quite integral to the running of a prison, which is visitors come in, they need refreshments. Often they've taken, you know, a sort of four-hour trip, if not longer, to get there. So why is it, do you think, that we still live in the day and age where charities are having to provide really vital services that I think the system should be providing themselves to a good standard? I think they're quite fundamental, really. It's what does the system think it needs to do? And, you know, if you use the example of families, it's, it's a really good example, actually. In HMPPS's terms, family support doesn't necessarily extend to the family members kind of separately from the prisoner. So those family services contracts are actually the beneficiary of those contracts is the person in prison. Okay. So the visit is provided to them. And, you know, then a certain number of people can come and then the charities provide support to those people as people in their own right, people going through that experience. But this, the contract itself is to provide the visit to the man or woman in prison or the child in prison for them. Okay. And, you know, a lot of this is as well, I think, when the system is having to think about in times of insufficiency, when they don't have enough money, prioritising down, I think stripping back a lot of the time saying that, no, we have to absolutely restrict it. This is what we do. Then some, But we also think this needs to be done. Who else can do it? Yeah. But ne- not necessarily always strategically to say, right, we're going to create this space for you and we're going to protect that space. So you come in whatever money you want, whatever money you can bring and you bring this to it and we will allow you to do that. So sometimes we, you know, how clinks were set up all those years ago organizations coming in with money that they get from elsewhere still struggling to work with the system and to provide that service yeah 
because of the issues around control and trust, you know, really go to the heart of this. The other dysfunction that I've seen over the years is then, you know, you tender for a contract as a sort of small local charity. And of course, you're then put in competition with really your friends and colleagues. There's definitely something very fundamental for me about does the system have an articulation for what the voluntary sector brings? Or are these organisations that are there and they could as well be somebody else? So. I think that's a play an awful lot of the time. So if you use the example again, we're currently, you know, tender happy all the time. So the probation, the revised probation system is currently out to tender for a thing called a dynamic framework for the provision of rehabilitative services to the new National Probation Service. Um, and again, it's very clear there that private sector organisations, bigger organisations will probably more likely win those contracts. And if you look at the majority of organisations in the voluntary sector, if you were to do a voluntary sector competition, you would be looking at something that was very different because the majority of organisations are small. They are small, they are very local. So anything that looks at geographical lots that go past, you know, towns and towns and cities and regions, then you you are going for organisations that are bigger, that are at scale. And I'm not going to make, pass a judgment that th those organisations are wrong or bad. It's just if you thought that what you want is charities providing support for people in your local area, you would probably design very, very different competitions to the ones that are designed now. Yeah. And it really comes that thing of I want charities in my prison. I want charities supporting people on probation licence to my service. How do I get them in? And, and the answer is understand them and don't just understand what services they provide, understand what they could help you do. So we've argued certainly in the last few years with the experience of TR for strategic involvement of, of charities. And, and it might sound a bit like what on earth are you going on about? TR being transforming rehabilitation. Yeah. But what we kind of saw with TR was organisations, they're asked, can you provide this? And said, well, well, yeah, we can. We wouldn't necessarily think that's the best thing for you to do. No, this is what we want to buy. So the supply chains under the CRC were set up in such a way that people are providing transactional services up the chain and then receiving the price down in different ways, working to certain volumes and different contracts. And that is probably not the best way for them to work. It certainly doesn't get the full potential out of those charities. A more strategic approach would look first at this is what we have to achieve in X area. Who are all the different organisations that work here? What's already happening? What might they do? And what do they need to do that? And then you design your market, for want of a better word, you, you design that all to work around that. And what we're hoping is in the new probation system that there will be scope for that. There will be scope for voluntary organisations to sit around the table for what they bring in terms of ideas and needs. But there is sometimes at play this thing that why should we prioritise one type of provider over another? You know, what's special about voluntary organisations? And I think that's why I would say, well, actually quite a lot. Yeah. And these are organisations that were founded for those people. They were founded in that community to support that community. It's what they do. They have a very long track record. But a lot of the time, the competition systems favour commercial activities. 
and commercial strengths. Yeah. So, well, they don't have very many reserves and they don't, you think, yeah, but they haven't shut down now in coronavirus, you know, where maybe certain businesses might. They are hell bent on survival. Exactly. And I kind of think for a healthy relationship to survive, it needs to be based on sort of trust and respect. And that's something that um, has always been been quite thin on the ground in my experience working with either my own third sector organisations or uh, certainly over the years with other third sector organisations. And I remember probably going back 10, 15 years now, um, because I've been in the position as a funder, so giving money to these charities, but then also running these charities or being part of these charities. So seen it from quite a I suppose a 360 uh, degree angle around the houses and and often either myself or other funders giving a lot of money for that money to go to a charity that then basically is told by the prison they can't operate anymore in that prison for whatever reason the governor decides it doesn't like it anymore um, all sorts of things going on and the lack of communication that sort of comes towards you as someone who's giving up Sometimes your free time, you're giving your money, you're giving your energy, giving it all. Even if you're a salaried CEO like you, you know, you're giving it your all. And and I've always found that lack of communication and the lack of understanding about what the third sector actually does when it intersects with prisons quite, quite profound, actually, and quite shocking over the years. Yeah, I think it's got a little better recently, but there's a bit of a way to go. That old adage, knowledge is power, you know, and I think it is really fundamental about the provision of information. So even in, you know, in COVID-19, so what we've done in our kind of response support and organisations is we are in daily communication, all up and down HMPPS and MOJ and talking to people and collecting information from the sector and running it up the flag and saying, is this an issue? And one of the things that has really come up is the inconsistency in how different parts of the system work and it could be really good in certain situations you know so you find prisons where actually members of clings organizations that we're talking to are saying oh no it's perfect we work with x prison and this is what they've done and they're keeping us up to date and we've been asked about what we need to go back in as and when's the case and then you have organizations that read about what they're going to be doing in a prison newsletter and they haven't had that, a phone call to tell them in advance that that's going to happen. And they have a, you know, there are business considerations for that organisation to make yeah, and, you know, get themselves mobilised and all the rest of it. So information flow has been really difficult and communication. And in many ways, I think what we've tried to do in the response that we have in working with the sector, with HMPPS, I'm hoping that some of these things we won't let go of after COVID, that just, you know, more of a triage of what's coming in. So we've had a mailbox and if anybody's listening, is working in a criminal justice charity and is thinking, you know, I I have this concern about, you know, how will I know what's going to happen? When can I go back in? You can email us COVID-19 at clinks.org and we have regular phone calls with kind of a multidisciplinary team in HMPPS where we talk those issues through and we get people answers. Uh, and But those answers can be hard to get. They can be slow to get. The system is responding in a crisis. Mm. Uh, and it is an under-resourced system. And I think nobody would say that it isn't. Uh, it's a bit of a poor relation. Um, and it's a very complex system. And it's dealing with an unprecedented situation. But as a result, there's definitely not the 
consideration of what needs to happen with these organisations. But they're organisations that often provide quite essential services. And the big concern that we have right now is what is happening to people, particularly people in prison, but also people on release and people under probation supervision who can't get the things that they need for a prolonged period of time now. Not least because it's usually a lot of the time it's given or supplemented by the work of charities. So the education and training, the work of the arts sector in helping people to imagine different futures and also alleviate boredom and deal with very deep thought process changes in a in a more accessible way, maybe, you know, keeping your family contact going. We've talked a lot in this conversation so far about, you know, family support and visits, everything that you might need. And then coming out and getting ready to leave prison and and turn your life around all the support that you will need. And that's just, it's not really being thought about enough. What do these organisations need? I hope that that's changing a bit. So the minister, Lucy Fraser, established a third sector task force quite early on, actually, um, in conversation with us. And that task force then has a formal link to an advisory group that I chair, the Reduce and Reoffend and Third Sector Advisor Group. That's why we call it the RR3, because it's quite a mouthful. <laughs> and that has a special interest group around COVID-19. Now, the whole sector is not on there. Um, so there's challenges about trans. Uh, transparency of decision making, clarity of information, just getting stuff out to people as much as possible. Um, and I'm completely fallible and I'm perfectly happy for people to challenge me and say, oh, but and I don't know this. And how do I get that information into you guys so people can get in touch and tell us how we could make that better? Um, our team hasn't gotten any bigger. Uh, our organisation hasn't gotten any bigger in terms of what we're able to do with 26 people to cover, like you say, a whole range of expertise. But essentially what we've tried to do is listen and then feed that information in. Okay. And we're recording this. Um, it's very hot outside and it's August. Um, and so today where we sit with COVID in prisons, how many organisations have you heard of that are going back into the prisons, if any? Right now where we are, there's not many going back in. One of the things that we've been doing the last few weeks is um, we've got an agreement with the prison service where people can contact us to get the list of organisations that are at certain stages that might allow things going back in and the exceptional delivery bottles that guide what can happen. The family services organisations um, are back in on those contracts because of the structure of the different stages on the National Prison Recovery Framework which I won't go into in painstaking detail. But visits are one of the first things that can go back in certain stage. So that has started to happen. Um, there will be some education providers. There might be some substance misuse service providers providing into health contracts. Um, but the majority of the sector that works in prisons is still probably outside looking in. Now, people are still providing services. They've worked really in a really agile way to provide things that people can do in cell. But if some of the developments that we've called for in recent years, you know, over many years, and certainly in recent years, had happened, things would have been different in COVID-19. So the use of ICT, for example. ICT being? Sorry, information communication technology. Okay. If we had had the capacity to call someone's in-cell phone, people could have had access to different services. If you think about what one small thing maybe could have done. Yeah, absolutely. If you had the ability to reach in. Absolutely. 
instead of wait for people to reach out. Things like that. I think if we really reimagine how we work. We were asked to do a paper for the prison service, which I presented to Joe Farrer and her colleagues on around recovery. It's on the Clinks website and what the voluntary sector is saying. This is what you need to think about for recovery for us to do what we do best. Okay. And it includes things like just make sure we're still here. Don't lock us down into agreements of how we work that that restrain us and restrict us from doing what we do. You know, listen to people in prison, ask them what worked for them. Listen to people in probation services, ask them what they need. Tell us then what that is. So looking to the future, I mean, again, sorry for the maybe big difficult question um, without giving you too much notice. But when it comes to this sort of ecosystem of the, uh, the relationship of the third sector within the justice system, and particularly with the Ministry of Justice and Her Majesty's prison service, what does good look like or what could make a huge difference sort of right now that's not happening? I think some of the things are quite basic. It's you know, it's again about communication, two-way communication. What is happening in the system? What decisions are the system making? How are those decisions being made? Who is involved in those? Okay, and could that could that look like a weekly catch-up? You know, in my organisation, we have a weekly catch-up and sometimes they're long, sometimes they're not. So just to be really practical about it, would it be, I don't know, a weekly Zoom call with someone in the system? Or how would you see that communication actually happening? Because I think the detail is important. I think it could be things like that. It could be quite straightforward. So we kind of we have that at the macro level, if you like. Yeah. Because we have the COVID-19 special interest group of the RR3 and I have regular catch ups with prison service and MOJ leadership. But I think certainly at prison level and at probation service level going forward, I would like to see that there is strategic involvement and communication with your voluntary sector partners that you know who they are. Who provides services in this prison or to people leaving this prison? Would that be through the governor or where would you see that sitting? Who would have a responsibility in the prison for communicating with you? In the prison, we've got a particular model, which is, I suppose, the model that on which Clinks was founded, which is voluntary sector coordination. OK, so they'd need a voluntary sector coordinator within the prison, which sometimes they don't have. Yeah, a voluntary sector coordinator, a, a person who works for a voluntary sector organisation who is funded, either probably centrally, to bring everybody together, find out what everybody's doing, cascade information up and down, probably runs a voluntary sector forum, meeting with senior leadership and has a single point of contact in prison senior leadership to go to on issues. And that's like, you know, we're getting ourselves ready. We're doing this. What do we need to think about? Or can you ask people this? Can you tell people we need to know what information can go on activities list? Can you tell people this is where we're thinking here? It could be involvement. It could be information cascade. I think voluntary sector coordination actually could be incredibly powerful in prisons. We've been trying to kind of bring it back en masse through a project called The Good Prison in the last few years. But there's been resistance to that mainly around, well, what's the money? What's the benefit? And I think this is where we learn the benefit in prisons where voluntary sector organisations were better organised. They, they knew who each other were as well. Yeah. You talked earlier about organisations have to pitch against each other. There will be organisations that don't know who else they work with, who else they could work with. They're responding to needs they see, not knowing how somebody else responds to that need and how they might work together, might how they might refer, you know, how they might schedule their activities better that one leads off the other. It's actually quite easy to do. And what we found, so the three prisons where we did it a few years ago as a pilot, and then there was a few other prisons that were doing it themselves. 
uh, including Wandsworth when it was a reform prison, was one of the things done by the then exec governor uh, as part of its reform was, let's bring all of our charities together and see what they're doing. Yeah. What other projects are they doing? Or if we said to them, there's a room over there and 20 men with this need. If you can get the money, we will, you know, we will unlock people. We will assign prison officer time to working with your volunteers or whatever it is. Can you make this thing happen in this prison? Um, then that's what happens. You know, the voluntary sector coordination creates, we feel, an environment for innovation, an environment for partnership working, and above all, an environment for mobilising what people in prison want. Yeah. So big thing that happened in our project was people said, this is the big issue for me. These are the issues that we find. And then you're able to take that system back because... The fundamental thing for me, Edwina, about criminal justice voluntary sector organisations, so I've worked in the voluntary sector for a very long time now, I'm getting quite <laughs> old, and, but I've worked in all sorts of different charities in all sorts of different sectors. And what I find really gorgeous about criminal justice is there's a very distinct role, I think, for these organisations, and it is alongside but out with the system. Because whether it's done in a punitive way or not, the system often is the punishment. It's the order of the court and the sentence is passed down as a judgment. Now, during that judgment, you know, and during that sentence, people can access maybe some great things that really help them move on. So for some people, getting into the system can be really positive. But we also have a lot of evidence that the system can be harmful, can be very harmful. And there is therefore often a very strong argument for something that is outside the system to come in and to work with people in a way that you couldn't expect them to work with the system because of power. And it's not to say that there isn't power in the relationship held with voluntary sector organisations. And I think particularly this needs examining in relation to race and ethnicity, where the majority of voluntary sector organisations are not led by black, brown, gypsy, Roma traveller people. And yet there is a disproportionate number of black, brown, gypsy, Roma traveller people in prison. So how do we lead our organisations? How do we know what those people will need, particularly when that disparity is growing? But fundamentally, there's something about, you know, there, there can be a benefit to help people to change their lives when they're in this system from bringing in and and allowing that space for the other to work with them so they can leave that system behind. How much are we creating a system dependency in people? Absolutely. Um, and I could talk to you forever, <laughs> as you know, but if people want to learn more about the work of Clinks and what you do, where would you direct them? So our website is www.clinks.org. You can subscribe on there to Light Lunch, which is the Friday Bulletin. We're also on Twitter. It's at clinks underscore tweets. Um, if we do ever get tagged in for beautiful food, we do give credit where credit's due to our <laughs> member, the Clink Charity. Um, but yeah, that's where you'll find us. Uh, and we hope that if you need us, we're there and we're responsive. And if we're not, tell us. Like any other charity, we are always aspiring to be better. Um, but essentially, for as long as organisations work with people in the criminal justice system, we will aim to be there for them. Great. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. 
If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review, and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.